You're listening to the Comparative Media Studies Colloquium Podcast, a production of the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. Episodes are available on the iTunes Store, but we invite you to see us in person here in Cambridge. So get updates about upcoming events, each featuring top media speakers from MIT and around the globe, by joining the growing Comparative Media Studies community on Twitter, Facebook, and our website at cms.mit.edu. all for coming today. Um, uh, I know most of you, I think, but uh, I'm Vivek Bald. I'm assistant professor in writing and comparative media studies here at MIT. Uh, today's talk is the last CMS colloquium of the semester, I believe. Um, but it is also the third of four events in a series on uh, the cultural politics of the South Asian diaspora. Um, this series was initiated by Onamik Saha, who's here today, um, who is a visiting scholar at CMS this semester, uh, and who comes to us originally from Goldsmiths, University of London, where he did his PhD, and now by way of Leeds University, uh, on a postdoctoral fellowship from the Economic and Social Research Council. Uh, since December of last year, Onamik and I have been working together to organize a series of events that bring together scholars and students from the Boston area and from the UK to engage in an ongoing dialogue about the role of cultural production, uh, film, music, comic books, online spaces, etc., in the formation of South Asian diasporic communities, in the production of alternatives to mainstream media images of South Asians, and in the contestation of social inequalities and racial, xenophobic, and Islamophobic violence. The first two events that we had on April 12th and 25th uh, were seminar sessions. Uh, In the first of those, two senior scholars in the field of South Asian American studies, Rajani Srikanth and Vijay Prashad, uh, considered South Asian popular cultural responses to the war on terror looking specifically at the Bollywood film My Name is Khan and two music videos, MIA's Born Free and Fundamentals Cookbook DIY. Uh, In the second session, Diraj Murthy of uh, Bowdoin College looked at the relationship between physical and online spaces in the Muslim-American punk rock scene known as Takwa Core. Shilpa Dave from Brandeis presented her work on Marvel Comics' recent creation of an Indian Spider-Man comic book, uh, in part uh, aimed at a second-generation South Asian-American audience. Um, And Helen Kim from the London School of Economics spoke about the South Asian club scene and the relationship of British South Asian musicians and performers to the styles and uh, imagery and music of U.S. hip-hop. These have been really lively and productive sessions, uh, and they have brought us back repeatedly and in sometimes unexpected ways to the post-9-11 political and cultural climate and to shifts in representations and counter-representations of South Asians and Muslims in this climate. Uh, 
Uh, this was, of course, part of the point of the series. And when Anamik and I were first discussing these sessions in December and January, we both were immediately drawn to the, to the work of Cynthia Young, uh, our guest here today. Cynthia Young is an assistant professor of English and African and African associate professor of English and African and African diaspora studies at Boston College. Sorry to take that away from you. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, where she teaches courses on literature and popular culture. She received her BA from Columbia University and her PhD in American Studies from Yale University. Uh, her book her book on U.S. Third World Leftists, Soul Power, was published by Duke University Press in 2006. Uh, this is one of those bo books that make me proud to say that I was trained in American studies. Uh, it is interdisciplinary scholarship at its best, um, weaving together historical research, critical theory, and cultural analysis into a powerful document uh, of the influence of Third World liberation movements on U.S. activists and artists of color in the 1960s and early 70s. Her current project examines shifts in the constructions and representations of blackness uh, in both Britain and the U.S., primarily in the U.S., right, um, in the context of the war on terror. Interrogating popular culture and sites of political organizing, her project considers how the civil rights legacy has been hijacked by conservatives supporting an anti-immigrant, pro-war, and often white supremacist agenda. We are very happy that she'll be sharing part of this work with us today, focusing on the figure of the black soldier in two recent war on terror narratives on U.S. television, The Unit and Sleeper Cell. In the spirit of the transatlantic dialogue that we've been uh, building through these events, the way that we'll proceed today is that Professor Young will first present her talk, uh, and then Professor Saha will present a response drawing in part on his uh, own work on popular cultural representations of South Asians and Muslims in Britain during the same period. Uh, then we'll open it up for questions and discussion. Uh, Anamik Saha, as I mentioned, is a visiting scholar at CMS. His research interests are in race and the culture industries, and the sociology of cultural production, with a particular focus on British South Asian, sorry, on British South Asian popular culture and cultural politics. He has taught at, at Burbeck College, University of London, Brunel University, and the University of Portsmouth, and in 2008 was a visiting fellow at Trinity College, Connecticut. Uh, now I'm pleased to hand over to Cynthia Young. Hi, everyone can hear me? Not too obnoxious? Oh, turn it down a little, maybe. No. Um, so thank you, first of all, to uh, both Anamik and Vivek for inviting me and putting up with uh, my kind of slow responses. I have a 15-week-old at home, so I've been, uh, been on the mommy track for a few months now. Uh, so this has been a good occasion for me to, to start to re-engage um, my work at the end of my maternity leave. So thanks for that. Um, 
This is going to be a little bit different than uh, Vivek described it, only because I wanted to present some of the work I'm doing on black soldier rappers. So part of it is going to be about that, and the other part is about sleeper cell, and the unit part is, is uh, not so prominent in this version. Um, so anyway, that's, that's that. Um, this first part is called Reimagining Civil Rights, Reframing U.S. Imperialism. And it starts with an epigraph, uh, niggas ain't become Americans till 9-11, Talib Kweli, around my way. In August 2003, Condoleezza Rice spoke in front of the National Association of Black Journalists in what was described as a conversation with her about the war in Iraq and, and its aftermath. Three months earlier, President George W. Bush had declared mission accomplished. God, that seems so long ago now. And his approval rating was much higher than the 22% to which it would eventually sink. Speaking in front of what might be termed the hometown crowd, <clears throat> she said, the first black and female national security advisor, like many of you, I grew up around the homegrown terrorism of the 1960s. The bombing of the church in Birmingham in 1963 is one that will forever be in my memory because one of the little girls that died was a friend of mine. She went on. Forty years removed from the tragedy, I can honestly say that Denise McNair and the others did not die in vain. Because of their sacrifice, America is a better nation and a better example to a world where difference is still often taken as a license to kill. Then Rice veered into what can only be described as truly bizarre territory. Knowing what we know about the civil rights struggle, we should never, ever indulge in the condescending voices who allege that some people in Africa or in the Middle East are just not interested in freedom. They're culturally just not ready for freedom, or they just aren't ready for freedom's responsibility. We've heard that argument before, and we more than any as a people should be ready to reject it. It was wrong in 1960s Birmingham, and it is wrong in Baghdad in 2003. Needless to say, the comparison between Birmingham and Baghdad, to quote one columnist, fell flat. The comparison, however, is instructive in a number of ways because it tells us much about hegemonic attempts to align the civil rights era with the so-called war on terror. It reveals efforts to interpolate black Americans into U.S. empire-building projects, efforts that borrow the language and idealism of 60s-era activism in the name of U.S. imperialism. Rice's remarks were meant to draw a bright white line between black freedom struggles and the U.S. occupation of Iraq, between white-robed Klansmen and Iraqi armed resistors. Rice tried to reframe the civil rights movement by writing out the fact that it was as much about overturning U.S. racial and imperial logics as it was about gaining equal rights for black Americans. Instead, the civil rights movement became about realizing already imminent democratic ideals. This is in the way Rice tried to reframe it, rather than a global vision of racial equity and national autonomy. Since former President Bush first announced his war on terror, replete with not one, but two wars, black Americans have been front and center in foreign policy debates, in televisual representations, and in military troop depictions, in efforts to solidify what Chris Newfield has recently called a war democracy, where the line between non-citizen and suspect, domestic and foreign, is blurred, if not entirely eradicated. If black Americans are seemingly ideal ambassadors for the contemporary face of U.S. empire, then how might one decode the meanings that accrue to black bodies in the current moment? In this paper, I examine the question by looking at how black men are located and locate themselves in televisual and musical narratives that seek to position them as terror warriors. First turning to TV, I interrogate the meaning of the central black protagonist in Sleeper Cell, a show that represents several of the themes prevalent in other war on terror dramas, such as The Unit and 24. 
There, a black man embodies the fraught image of the U.S. nation under threat, a compelling contrast to the brownness and foreignness of Arab, in quotes, others who wish to destroy, in quotes, the American way of life. The second section of this paper contrasts this ideal image with rap music created by an Iraq war vet. Live from Iraq, the brainchild of Sergeant Neil Saunders, also known as Big Neil, was sanctioned by his commanding officers who allowed him to build a recording studio in the desert. Calling it venting for everybody, Saunders sees it as a voice for soldiers, a window on the, in quotes, reality of war. And that window is merciless, replete with fantasies of his death and that of countless Iraqis, opening up onto a messy, contradictory landscape populated by a black American who finds himself waging a war of occupation. In following the figure of the black male soldier as it intertwines with the global war on terror, I'm interested in exploring how race and racism has mutated in the last decade in ways that position black Americans as a critical fulcrum between white citizens and non-white, non-citizen suspects. The second section is called The Jihadi Who Sat By The Door. In looking at the way in which the legacy of the civil rights movement has been subtly reinterpreted and aligned with war on terror rhetoric, the Showtime series Sleeper Cell is a compelling place to begin. Over its two installments, the war on terror is articulated to the civil rights movement in a move that delegitimizes the anti-racist struggles of the 1960s, placing them firmly in a racist past rather than a racially polarized present. How many of you have seen Sleeper Cell? Anyone? Yeah. The show's black protagonist. It's not, you know, that hard to follow. Trust me. The show's black protagonist establishes a parallel between anti-racist struggle and contemporary Islamic terrorism, one that sutures together opposition to terrorism and support for U.S. foreign and domestic policy. Sleeper Cell begins as Darwin El Sayed, an African-American Sunni Muslim who's also an FBI agent, infiltrates a terrorist cell that is preparing to carry out a chemical attack on, on L.A. Comprised of an international cast of characters, the cell includes Tommy, a blonde, blue-eyed, in quotes, all-American type who is rebelling against his domineering professorial mother, Bobby, a mild-mannered family man that always makes me laugh, Christian, a former French skinhead who converted to Islam, and Ilya, a Bosnian survivor of the Serbian War who blames the U.S. for the Bosnian genocide. Farik, a Saudi national and veteran of several, in quotes, holy wars, is their ruthless, charismatic leader. The second season employs the same plot device, grouping together a different, similarly motley crew of would-be terrorists, with Darren himself as the cell's leader. The new characters include Benito, Benny, a Latino ex-gang member who converts to Islam in prison. That's also um, what Darwin's cover story is. Mina, a Dutch former prostitute who seeks revenge for her husband's death in Iraq, and Salim, a gay British Iraqi exile whose faith conflicts with his sexual desires. The substitutability inherent in Sleeper Cell's premise enables it to have a serial-like quality adaptable to the times, something that is part of its value as an entertainment commodity. In fact, president of entertainment for Showtime, Robert Greenblatt, indicated that Sleeper Cell may be resurrected every few years as a way of revisiting or assessing progress in the war on terror. So we can look to Sleeper Cell to tell us how we're doing in the war on terror. Darwin, played by Michael Ely, is a soft-spoken, contemplative man who seems to carry the weight of the world on his slightly stooped shoulders. His very identities are at war with one another. The FBI and the U.S. more broadly cannot understand or really sympathize with Muslims, even as they need their help to foil domestic terrorism. On the other hand, the terrorists want to destroy the America Darwin calls home. A patriotic, devout Muslim is incomprehensible to both sides, making Darwin the perfect spy shuttling between these two worlds. 
His conflicting allegiances to the FBI in the cell embodied Darwin's internal conflicts, externalizing what W.E.B. Du Bois once described as double consciousness with one critical difference. Whereas Du Boisian double consciousness emerges be because blackness and whiteness are at odds with one another, in Sleeper Cell's universe, it is Islam and the U.S. that are in conflict. The show tries to dispel this idea by focusing on Darwin's piety rather than his patriotism. Thus, fighting Islamic extremism is a religious rather than a patriotic duty. It's an internecine struggle between terrorists who would pervert the Quran's message and those who believe in a peaceful Islam. The show goes to great lengths to assert that Islam is not synonymous with terrorism, nor are all Muslim, Muslims extremists, and yet the plot progresses because nearly every Muslim character is connected in one way or another to the unfolding terrorist plot. Emphasizing Darwin's religious faith makes his spying a matter of saving Islam rather than safeguarding U.S. interests. Consequently, the efficacy and ethicality of U.S. state policy is never seriously interrogated. Darwin's moral dilemmas stem from the fact that his undercover life endangers those he loves, not from his actions as an FBI agent. If Darwin's religious struggles take center stage on the show, little overt attention is devoted to the fact of Darwin's blackness, even though the show depends upon the overdetermined way in which black male bodies signify. Though Sleeper Cell would have you believe that Darwin's blackness is incidental, it is actually central to this war on terror drama in both implicit and explicit ways. For one, Darwin's blackness provides an unspecified motivation that is made explicit for other characters. While each of the Sleeper Cell members has a backstory explaining why they have turned to terrorism, Darwin's cover story is simply that he's a black ex-con, a status that sufficiently explains his disaffection to his Sleeper Cellmates. While plot time is devoted to teasing out each character's psychological motivations, Darwin's cover story is simply his skin color. In fact, the narrative turns on the presumption that Darwin's black skin is a metonym for civic alienation, a view reinforced from our first glimpse of Darwin through the bars of his prison cell. The black body is a caged body, be it physically or metaphorically. Incidentally, the same is true for Benny, whose ties to a Latino gang and Islamic extremism are equated with one another. Just as Benny was loyal to his gang, he is now slavishly devoted to the cell. The series denies both he and the sleeper cell member Darwin, as distinct from the undercover Darwin, who shuttles between the cell and FBI, any real psychological depth. Instead, their racial and ethnic identities become crude shorthand for the history of brutal discrimination that allegedly leads to terrorism. In this case, Darwin's blackness makes him the perfect undercover agent because the other terrorists with whom he's working automatically assume that he's anti-American which is to say that they do not see him as American at all. This point is expressly articulated when Darwin eventually arrests one cell member. While Darwin is subduing him, the man incredulously asks, you are working for the Americans? To which Darwin responds, I am an American. That this has to be reasserted only underscores the ways in which sleeper cell depends upon the black body never being fully integrated into the US body politic. The black man as a kind of what I call integrated alien animates the logic that makes Darwin's character possible. Sleeper Cell pretends to dispel the belief that black men are not intricately woven into the fabric of American life. You know, the show's main character is a black FBI agent, even as it underscores their position as a liminal group simultaneously inside and outside the nation. Darwin's familial dynamics literalize this larger social dynamic when we are introduced to his father, Benjamin Al-Sayed, in an episode entitled Home, in which we learn the reasons for the two men's deep estrangement. Played by renowned stage and screen actor Charles S. Dutton, who also directs the episode, the elder Al-Sayed is a Nation of Islam member and a black man steeped in 1960s radicalism, 
allegiances that, in his view, set him firmly at odds with his son. And it should be said that this um, episode happens in the second season. Um, before that, we really get very little information about Darwin's sort of home life, um, etc. So let me play a short clip and then um, say a few words about it. Checked on me. Just like your mother asked, you can go now. You've done your good deed for the day. I'll see you around, Pops. <clears throat> okay. So, um, just for time's sake, I think I'm going to. Um, uh, exclude one little thing I wanted to say about the comparison between Vietnam and, and um, the Iraq War. But of course, during Q&A, people can ask me about it, um, and I'd be happy to talk about it. <clears throat> it is U.S. imperial arrogance that Benjamin attacks throughout the two men's ensuing argument. When Darwin asked the attending nurse for privacy, the two engage in this heated debate over the, nation of, the nature of the FBI and the nation it defends. In a dialogue rich with multiple meanings, nation here could mean the nation of Islam, the white nation, the black nation, and of course the U.S. nation, we discover the reasons for the two men's estrangement. While Darwin sees himself as a member of the FBI and the U.S. nation, his father is diametrically opposed to everything for which they stand. 
Benjamin's world is the bifurcated one where allegiances derive from one's race, black and white, on opposite sides of the line. To be black is to be alienated from the U.S. mainstream, defined here as white. It is to oppose U.S. state policy and repudiate its imperial ambitions. This is a position rejected by Darwin in both his professional and personal life. Not only has he formed a nuclear family with a white single mother and his son, and her son, but it is his job to stop those who would bring down U.S. empire. Darwin is part of a black and white coalition marshaled to protect and defend the U.S., his presence a result of integration defined not by racial equality, but rather by membership in a community of imperial warriors. On the other hand, Benjamin is a man out of time, an anachronistic byproduct of 1960s-era black radicalism. Invoking this era is crucial to Sleeper Cell's narrative. If Benjamin's anger stems from the long durée of racism and state violence that have defined U.S. black identity, Sleeper Cell seeks to contain that antipathy in a distant past that no longer reflects or impacts contemporary life. So the show acknowledges the reality of past discrimination only to situate it in an historical era that it defines as largely irrelevant to the present. That is to say that Benjamin and the civil rights era that he represents have little bearing on the challenges and struggles inherent in the war on terror, a fact that Benjamin's comparison of Iraq and Vietnam is meant to underscore. Locating these racial and political schisms in the past also implicitly embeds those schisms within the civil rights era rather than in American history writ large. Those schisms and implicitly that era are the problem rather than a reflection of the white supremacy against which black people have struggled for centuries. It is Benjamin's insistence upon remembering that history that is to blame for racial inequalities, not discriminatory actions taken by groups like the FBI. This subtext shades Darwin's final statement that it was Benjamin's nation that killed Malcolm X. Though the comment explicitly, explicitly ref, refers to the nation of Islam assassins who shot Malcolm X, it implicitly situates racial culpability squarely in the black nation. In discrediting Benjamin's kind of racial thinking, Sleeper Cell constructs a contorted logic in which Darwin, the FBI agent, speaks in Malcolm's name, while his father's threadbare allegiances prove to be counterproductive and ultimately deadly. Sleeper Cell hammers this point home in another confrontation between the two men.
It wasn't about that <clears throat> moment. It's about everything since. The army. The FBI. It's the army because of you. I didn't have a choice. You got a boss, Darwin, a supervisor. What color is he, huh? Pretty pale, I bet. How many black agents they even got in the FBI? Come on, be honest. Your government's war on terror strategy is a joke anyway. It's not my strategy, but it is my war. And I'm not just going to avoid it. If I did, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be your son. Look at me, Mom. Look at me. In a speech that positions the FBI and the Army as part of a familial inheritance, Darwin perversely ignores the political substance of his father's beliefs, reducing his father's example to the superficial. Here, Benjamin's posture and habit of reading matter more than the reasons for his proud stance or the substance of the books he's reading. When confronted with the reality that Darwin's life as an FBI agent puts him firmly at odds with, quote, everything I believe, everything I'm about, Darwin changes the subject, accusing his father of playing the victim and holding on to ancient personal grievances. It is also important here that, the ben that Benjamin himself collapses his opposition to the FBI into a comment on, on its white power structure when, in fact, his initial critique begins with a reference to COINTELPRO. Whatever the color of its operatives, the COINTELPRO um, initiative would have been unconscionable, a position undermined in Benjamin's later comment. Reducing Benjamin's position to what might be thought of as a racially superficial one strips his position of its radicalism. In this exchange, several things collapse into one another. For one, a philosophical and political disagreement between the two men is framed by a family dispute, as a family dispute, sorry, is framed as a family dispute in which the audience cannot help but side with the 10-year-old Darwin. Benjamin's objections to his son's life choices are framed here by Darwin's contention that his father is really angry over losing custody of his son. 
If one believes the son's account, then one is willing to discredit the father's political grievances as well. The immaturity inherent in a father resenting his 10-year-old son for 20 years makes Benjamin seem both irrational and unsympathetic. Thus, to oppose U.S. institutions and their policies is to be a bad father. The two are related by association, if not causally. Benjamin's politics render him incapable of being a father to his child. By merging opposition to the federal government with his opposition to Darwin, Sleeper Cell positions Benjamin as someone who rails against the, quote, natural ties of father to son, citizen to nation. And this is actually paralleled in Farrakh, the cell leader's relationship with his daughter. He's a bad father who puts the, you know, struggle uh, over his relationship to his child. Secondly, Benjamin's sense of personal victimization cannot be separated in Darwin's explication from his sense of ongoing racial injustice. This reduction of racism to personal grievances and warped perceptions is consistent with Sleeper Cell's treatment of civil rights era convictions. Racial inequality is a matter of outdated perceptions rather than contemporary reality. Darwin's reduction of racism to victimization also invokes popular conservative views positioning black people who decry racism as inflating every site into an issue of race to gain unfair advantages. Benjamin's situation, be it his estrangement from Darwin, his health, or his economic position, are his own fault caused by his inability to stop playing the victim. In this blame-the-victim scenario, Benjamin is given little room to maneuver as Darwin damns him with his own words. His refusal to see past the victimhood paradigm is Benjamin's own undoing. His verbal attacks, not to mention the loud, blustery manner in which Dutton delivers his lines, predispose us to perceive him as, again, irrational and ultimately unlikable. The perception of Benjamin as irrational performs other ideological work as well. His irrationality aligns him with the terrorists that Darwin has sworn to fight. He, like them, is slavishly loyal to beliefs that are destructive and senseless. Those are both obviously in quotes. While he and the terrorists represent a past that refuses to go away, Darwin is the future, an idealized representation of racial integration and proof, in quotes, that the U.S. is a racially and religiously tolerant place. His race and his faith enable Darwin's incorporation into the sleeper cell, the FBI, and ultimately the nation. The fact that he's a black Muslim is precisely what makes him such a valuable commodity to the FBI. Islam is mobilized here to put a glossy cosmopolitan spin on U.S. empire. In Darwin's view, fealty to Islam requires fealty to the U.S. imperial state, glossed here as free, democratic, and nonviolent. Being a good Muslim means Darwin must fight the war on terror, even if that war is a joke. As fighting terrorism conflates with support for U.S. foreign policy, Islam becomes yet another engine for attaining U.S. power and prestige. Darwin's assertion that it's not his strategy, but it is his war, draws a line between the strategy and the war as if the two are distinct, when in fact the distinction ultimately collapses into his role as an FBI agent. Darwin's complicity in U.S. empire, however, is coded as a war to save Islam from extremism. Religious aims disguise national ones, allowing Darwin to claim the moral high ground and distinguish himself from the terrorists in the process. In fact, however, Darwin and the terrorists make the same kinds of calculations, only they reach different conclusions. In both cases, Islam is interpreted so that it justifies violent means to pursue an allegedly just end. In the case of the terrorists, however, violence is endemic to their televisual representation, while the violence of U.S. empire remains largely invisible and off-screen. When the FBI and Darwin deploy force, they do so reluctantly as a defensive strategy. Sleeper Cell thus recodes imperial occupation and war as defensive, if not strictly nonviolent entities. The third section is called Lace Your Boots Up. 
If thus far I've looked at televisual a televisual representation of a terror, terror warrior, I want to now look at a depiction of the war on terror from the perspective of an Iraq War II vet. Before doing that, however, it's useful to frame that discussion with a consideration of the context in which African Americans enter the military, how re well represented they are in the military, and what they and other pe people of color face there. Looking at the Army and Marine Corps, the two branches most heavily deployed in both Iraq and Afghanistan, people of color make up approximately 30% of the Corps and 40% of the Army. In the most current figures, which are from 2008, African Americans comprise 10% of the Marines Corps, which represents a 5% decline from 1995. And this is significant because every other ethnic racial group has increased its representation. Black Americans are the only ones who are going down. As of 2008, Latinos make up 12% of the Corps, up from 9% in 1995, and all other people of color, and that's the way the military does it. They're just like Asians, Native Americans, Alaskan Native, Pacific Islanders, multiracial, all one thing. The Marine Corps lumps them all together, making up 8% of the Corps, up from 4%, so it's doubled um, since 1995. In the Army, there's also a noticeable decline in African-American representation. As of 2009, African-Americans between the ages of 18 and 39 with high school degrees make up 17% of the Army enlisted and 17% of the general population. In 2005, that number was 23% as compared to 16% of the general population. So what I'm saying here is that at one point um, in the not-so-distant past, African-Americans were disproportionately represented, and now they're exactly um, on par with what the representation is in the population. So the representation of people of color other than African-Americans has either remained stable or gone up. Um, but black recruitment has declined by nearly 60%, 6-0% since 2000. It's worth noting, however, that one in three women serving in the Army is African-American. So what I'm saying here is that black women's participation is going up as black male participation is going down. And I think there are a lot of reasons um, for that. Um, one would be the mass incarceration of black males, uh, although that's also happening to black women. So I think there are other things going on there. <clears throat> In today's military, oh, sorry, despite declining enlistment, however, the military is still one of the most, in quotes, integrated workplaces in America. In today's military, you will, this is a quote, work for black officers or NCOs, which is non-commissioned officers. Director of the U.S. Army Military History Institute recently remarked in an art article written by the American Forces Press Service, an in-house propaganda organ. So, you know, this is definitely part of the narrative that the military tells about itself at this moment in history. Though black perceptions of more economic opportunities outside the military are partially responsible, the decline in black recruits is largely due, I think, to the unpopularity of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. A major in-depth study of the trend identified black people's opposition to the Iraq war and a, in quotes, mistrust of President George W. Bush as key factors in declining African-American enlistment. Before the war in Iraq even began, polls showed that as few as 19% of black people surveyed thought it was the right move as compared to white Americans, 58% to 75%, depending upon the poll, supporting the war. In 2007, that opposition had, wanted, had waned little with 85% of black people responding to a Gallup poll saying the war was a mistake, while only 53% of whites thought so. Black activists and entertainers have been vocally opposed to the war in Iraq, particularly in the wake of the Bush administration's criminal response to Hurricane Katrina. Kanye West's quip that George Bush doesn't care about black people sent the media into a feeding frenzy. But less well known, at least outside of black communities, is the insistent drumbeat of anti-war sentiment found on black radio stations like the Tavis Smiley Show or the Tom Joyner Morning Show, 
which currently has over 8 million listeners comparable in size to Howard Stern. So um, what I'm saying here is it's interesting that we're not hearing about that when the audience is um, as large as Howard Stern's. And, you know, we do hear about the various nonsense that goes on on that show. Black activists have also been at the forefront of organizing large demonstrations. Black anti-war and labor activist Fred Mason, co-founder of U.S. Labor Against the War, was a a co-organizer of the anti-war march on Washington in January 2007, as well as a prominent speaker at the follow-up event in which anti-war activists lobbied Congress to withdraw support for the war. More importantly, the anti-war message is being disseminated at the grassroots. Anti-war activist Kenyon Farrow contends key role models, parents, ministers, and the like, who have traditionally encouraged black enlistment are now actively discouraging black youth from signing up. A third factor in declining enlistment is the widespread perception that black soldiers will be steered toward dangerous combat jobs, as they were during the Vietnam War. Ironically, The truth is that African-American recruits are more likely to end up in administrative and support jobs. Faced with higher unemployment than whites, black enlistees join the military to gain skills that either have real-world economic value or can lead to a military career. On the other hand, their white counterparts tend to seek combat jobs that provide shorter-term benefits like cash signing bonuses and money for college. As of 2003, black soldiers served as administrative specialists at nearly twice the rate of white ones. 758 to 2689. The incorrect perception that black soldiers are more likely to see combat, which has fueled black opposition to the war, including Congressman Charles Rangel's efforts to reinstate the draft, is an example of how the Vietnam War uh, continues to set the terms of anti-war activism, at least in black communities. On the other hand, the Iraq War has blurred the distinction between support and combat combat troops. In this urban guerrilla war, both are high-profile targets for IEDs. So what I'm arguing is that the perception that more black men and women will be in harm's way is both true and not true, right? It's true in terms of the fact that even support staff is targeted, but it's untrue in that they are not um, largely gravitating towards combat um, positions. Clearly, the U.S. military wants to foster the impression of a racially diverse workforce, even as African-American recruits decline. At the Iraq War's onset, the Army chose an African-American, Brigadier General Vincent Brooks, to deliver daily briefings that were broadcast internationally, making him the, quote, official voice and face of the war. At least one black newspaper, New York's Amsterdam News, took the bait, writing a feature on Brooks that appeared on their front page. That article goes on to note that the journalist's escort to the briefings is an African-American, as is the Director of Public Affairs, Army Lieutenant Colonel Ray Shepard. As I've been suggesting, suggesting, the association of the black body with the distant civil rights struggle, combined with the well-known history of black exploitation during the Vietnam War, makes it all the more imperative that the Iraq War's public face be a black one. The military may be more racially integrated, but it is still a hostile work environment for people of color, women, and gays and lesbians. While homophobia has been a well-publicized problem because of the discriminatory don't ask, don't tell policy, less spotlight has been shown on the extent to which racial and sexual harassment is still endemic to the military. And this has changed a little bit since um, I, I wrote this. A study completed in 2006 found that among the nearly 40,000 respondents, two-thirds had experienced an incident of racial harassment in the last 12 months, though only one in 10 reported them. Of all minority groups, African Americans were the most likely to face harassment. They and other harassed personnel were 40% more likely to be dissatisfied with their workplace, not surprisingly, um, making them more likely to leave the military. If racial harassment is a commonplace occurrence at military installations, so too is sexual assault and rape. 
If estimates by the Department of Veteran Affairs are accurate, and I know that they definitely um, represent underreporting, of the 190,000 women who have served or are serving in Iraq and Afghanistan, 90%, will be or have been sexually harassed. 71% will be or have been sexually assaulted, and 30% will be or have been raped. Harassment can be as blatant as public groping or per- verbal comments about female body parts, and also, um, and they, like incidents of assault and rape, are reported only 10% of the time, according to the Department of Defense's own statistics. So they say, Here's, here are the stats, but we know that you know, it's really only capturing 10% of, of the reality. In addition, rates of suicide in the military have been steadily rising since 2001. In 2009, 300 active-duty active personnel killed themselves more than in any year since the military started keeping records uh, in 1980. Suicides are highest in the Army, but the Marine Corps has also seen a yearly increase since the invasion of Iraq. The problem is much worse among recent veterans, according to a 2008 CBS News report. 18 veterans kill themselves every day, while only one to two soldiers die on average in combat. So actually, this might be the first war where the numbers of suicides outnumber the numbers of combat deaths. Between 2003, oh, those rates are likely due to high rates of depression and PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Between 2003 and 2004, 19% of soldiers serving in Iraq or Afghanistan reported PTSD symptoms immediately after their tours ended, and 35% of veterans reported them within a year after deployment. And we know, again, that people are under-reporting because many people won't come forward. Rates were highest among Iraq war vets and did not reflect the high point of combat deaths, which occurred between 2006 and 2007. A study of mental health diagnoses of 289,000 Iraq and Afghan war veterans between 2002 and 2008 found that 37% of them were diagnosed with either depression, anxiety, PTSD, or drug and or alcohol abuse. In terms of combat experience, a war of occupation is both a dangerous and powerful experience, at least if you're on the occupying end. Um, Many of you may have seen the New York Times Magazine um, cover story, which is um, about kind of rogue um, combat units. In a recent Esquire article entitled, I Miss Iraq, I Miss My Gun, I Miss My War, a veteran remarks that he misses the action. I don't want to sound like a psychopath, but you're like a god over there. That godlike persona seems to be solidified by the casual dehumanization of Iraqi civilians. Doug Connor, a surgical nurse, had the job of treating Iraqi civilians, whom he and other hospital personnel frequently referred to as range balls, because just like on the driving range in Gulf, you don't care about losing them. Another Iraq veteran, Aidan Delgado, recalled in his memoir the casual use of the term haji to describe every Iraqi. Though haji is an Arabic term of honor for a Muslim who's gone on the Hajj to Mecca, its use by soldiers to describe all Iraqis blurs the line between nationality, religion, and race. In army usage, Delgado writes, haji means gook or, Car- or Charlie or nigger. Again, the kind of um, invoking of the Vietnam War. The comment raises an interest- interesting question, and that is to what extent haji functions as a racist slur. On one level, it hardly matters. It certainly functions in the way that racist epithets do, which is to say that its use is meant to denote both difference and inferiority. It operates in the context of war and occupation to dehumanize the Iraqis whose homes are stormed and whose family members are imprisoned. Former Marine Brian Kassler puts it this way. Military personnel were racist and dehumanizing and always on a high pedestal as being better than everybody else, an attitude that carried over to Afghanistan and then back to Iraq. It wasn't any individual's actions, just a perpetual thing, and it was accepted. A former Marine who served two tours in Iraq observed, 
um, linked the pervasive racism among troops to the total nullification of common rules of engagement, which is military speak for when troops are allowed to shoot their weapon, discharge their weapon. There was racism in every rank in the military. All we ever did was harass people, drive like crazy on the streets, pretending it was our city, and that we could do whatever we wanted. The longer we were there, the more lenient the rules of engagement got. So if someone had a bag and a shovel, we were to shoot them. And at that point in time, everything looked suspicious. Later on, we had no ROE, no rules of engagement at all. If you see something that doesn't look right, take them out. Those examples are borne out by the testimony from the Winter Soldier hearings organized by Iraq veterans against the war, where veterans have recounted their vast experiences. If such brutalizing, brutally dehumanizing behavior is a predictable byproduct of occupation, it also reflects a U.S. national and legal context in which the meaning of Muslim and Arab have often been conflated, and Arabs have been racialized as both non-white and white at different historical moments. I've taken so much care in describing the military context in which soldiers create popular culture responses to the war in order to show the contradictory space in which black military personnel find themselves. Members of a community largely opposed to the wars in which they fight, black recruits, recruits are also decades removed from the civil rights and Vietnam War experiences that undergird that opposition and pave the way for the relative integration of the armed forces from which they now benefit. While fewer African Americans choose to enter the military, they are positioned front and center in the public relations campaign surrounding the conflict, both on TV and in real life. And obviously this has only become all the more true since we now have a black president. Even as black enlistees make a choice that is increasingly unpopular in the black community, they face discrimination, sexual assault, and homophobia within the military. If African Americans are still underemployed, unemployed, and unequal citizens in their own home country, in Iraq and Afghanistan they are foreign occupiers with all the privileges that entails. On the other hand, the racism that dehumanizes Iraqis dehumanizes them too, just as the racialization frameworks wielded against African Americans have proved malleable enough to encompass Muslim and Arab Americans. And as with all military personnel, of course, their service takes its toll, resulting in debilitating physical and or mental illness long after they've returned home. In concluding, I want to look briefly at a musical example from Big Neil Saunders. In Live from Iraq, Saunders, rapping under the name Fourth Quarter, well, Fourth 25, which stands for Fourth Quarter, as in we're in the fourth quarter of the game and we have to change things, presents himself as an angry victim, the pawn of incompetent and arrogant commanding officers and the target of Iraqis who smile in your face while plotting to kill you. In raps replete with inflated male posturing and self-pitying threats, Saunders is the reluctant occupier who simply wants to do his job and go home. The only problem, of course, is that his job is to subdue an Iraqi population, remaking them in the U.S.'s images. image. It is tempting to see Live from Iraq as a collection of gangster rap boasts set to a war soundtrack, and, and in some sense it is. Recorded in Baghdad in a studio, Saunders built from old sheets of plywood and mattresses in a room he shared with eight other soldiers. The album was meant to convey life as a soldier in Iraq without any, in quotes, self-censorship. He had a keyboard, digital mixer, microphones, and headphones shipped from the U.S. and recorded with the help of his force members. Though home from Iraq since 2006, Saunders, users, Saunders um, use proceeds from uses proceeds, excuse me, from the album and personal money to fund support projects for active duty and retired soldiers. You can also get the album if you care on Amazon as a CD or an MP3 album. The repeated assertion by Saunders that the album reflects the reality of war is clearly part of the album's marketing, a technique directly borrowed from gangster rap, among other cultural forms, which promotes itself based on the fantasy that you, the listener, are hearing what they don't want you to hear. 
This fantasy of illicit consumption holds sway over we consumers, despite the fact that they, read multifaceted billion-dollar corporations, make it possible for us to buy or download the music in the first place. Nonetheless, it has reached troop members and their families who allegedly send Saunders emails saying the album has helped them deal with their experience of war. Whether this is true or not, it's chilling to think that Live from Iraq is a truth-telling exercise, both because of the grim news it brings and its utterly one-sided pro-soldier perspective. Big Neal's tales of incompetent commanders, cowardly soldiers, and duplicitous Iraqis are punctuated with nearly continuous threats to fuck them, an expression as juvenile as it is bare-boned, which seems to be a catch-all phrase for killing without remorse. In the song of the same name, so there's a song called Fuck em, the rapper underscores various observations with the ubiquitous fuck em. I hear his mama crying, but I still scream fuck em. I load my magazine on this buster. That's how I say fuck em. The rapper continues, if you ain't got no food, fuck em. If you ain't got no shoes, because I got everything to live for, he got nothing to lose, fuck em, etc. The relentlessness of the song and others like it gets under your skin. It repulses you, it depresses you, it might even frighten you, but mostly it forces you to consider how a black soldier begins to think like an occupier. And when all is said and done, that seems to be the role that Saunders embraces, if not without some ambivalence. So in concluding, I want to look more closely at two songs, just very briefly, Behind the Screens is the first one and 24 Hours. In Behind the Screens, I'm interested in Saunders' critique of military policy, which draws upon slave imagery. And in 24 Hours, I explore the ways in which Saunders reimagines uh, or imagines a su- successful occupation. So.
So you get general sense of it, I think. All right, so for Saunders, um, <clears throat> the war is not ultimately about whether it's ethical or unethical, but rather that it's been mismanaged and poorly planned. A better war means fewer dead soldiers and presumably a successful shorter occupation. Ironically, the rhymes press home that argument by comparing the army to a plantation where the soldiers are like whip slaves. Following that metaphor to its logical conclusion, it's the military commanders slash plantation owners who benefit from the occupation, creating a potential space in which black soldiers and Iraqis might find common cause. Neither set the terms of engagement, and yet the two are pitted against one another. The Iraqi insurgents, as distinct from the civilian population, continually whip the soldiers while the commanders idly sit by. The solution offered then might be that the slave slash soldier rebel against the top brass. Instead, the rappers want rules of, engage, want rules of engagement that acknowledge their reality. Everyone's a hostile until proven otherwise. The associative loop between slavery and occupation, where the slaves, <clears throat> oh my God, I just lost my place, uh, where the slaves are the occupiers and the overseers, um, overturns what we think we know about history's oppressors and history's victims, and yet it seems to capture the frustration and anger driving black soldiers. If slavery is the product of violent coercion, then how can military service be similarly framed, especially when the slaves slash soldiers are the ones carrying guns in a country where they do not speak the language, do not understand the culture, and do not have any real investment in the country's future? The plantation metaphor expresses the exploitative situation in which black soldiers find themselves, even as it erases their own culpability for the horrific tableaus in which they participate. If soldiers are just slaves, they cannot be responsible for their actions any more than they can benefit from their labor, but of course that's not true. The soldiers who make it out alive leave Iraq, their neighborhoods are not the war-scarred landscapes they leave behind them, and they do not exactly return home empty-handed. They're compensated, or at least undercompensated rather than uncompensated, for their military service, even if the price they pay is hardly worth it. By contrast, 24 Hours focuses on daily interactions with Iraqis. Consequently, it's one of the most chilling cuts on life from Iraq. And in this, he basically says, um, give me 24 hours and I will like, set up the perfect occupation. So, I'm just going to play a little bit of this. No mercy, no discrimination. Everyone is equal before the weight of the soldiers' rough justice, and only total capitulation on the part of the Iraqis will suffice. 
In this fantasy, fixing Iraq is stripped of the humanitarian rhetoric favored by politicians. Instead, a brute show of force brings peace and resolution for the soldier, if not for the country's rightful inhabitants. The song is refreshingly candid and also naively wrong in its assertion that overwhelming force can bring lasting peace. It is also matter-of-fact in its sweeping dehumanization of the men, women, and children in the soldiers' sights, as if he cannot imagine that he and they might have anything in common. Perhaps this more than anything is difficult to believe. For a man keenly aware of what it means to be constantly under siege, Saunders seems utterly incapable of imagining that this predicament is precisely the thing he shares with the Iraqis. It is easy to dismiss 24 hours as the product of masculine braggadocia. Saunders has the answer, and it's a gun in your face. Until one realizes that the song itself doesn't so much oversimplify war as it does present war bare-knuckled to us, his solution the inevitable endpoint of occupation. His approach pushes a nihilistic and dehumanizing logic so far that one wonders whether or not this is the rapper's way of forcing you, the listener, to reckon with the consequences of a war of occupation fought for nearly a decade. The possibility that is precisely that separates it from war on terror dramas such as Sleeper Cell, which pretends that honor, integrity, and racial equality can emerge from imperial scenarios such as the ones in Iraq and Afghanistan. Instead, life from Iraq revels in a certain kind of nihilism, one where survival is the only good, where white and non-white soldiers find common cause in degrading and killing Iraqis, where the hope for solidarity amongst the oppressed, to invoke a word popular in the 60s, dissolves in a thick, greasy haze of nationalist bravado and imperial arrogance. If this is the substance of imperialism circle, circa 2011, it is also the inverse of the future for which civil rights veterans so proudly fought. The perverse and paradoxical linking of civil rights and U.S. imperial war is precisely the linkage that this paper has sought to disrupt and dismantle. The success of that delinking will ultimately determine how we understand race and racial justice in the 21st century. Thank you. Is that on? That works. Seems to. Just going to pull up a PowerPoint now. Yeah, got it. Um, oh, it's already. It's on my stick still. The stick still plugged in, so should just come up. Okay. Yeah, it will, um, it's blank for now, but it should come up in a moment. So um, thanks for coming. Thanks, for Vivek, for the introduction. Um, and especially thank you to Cynthia for, one, agreeing to come today and for also for presenting such a rich and interesting paper, I think. Um, so Vivek talked about this um, in his introduction, but I just want to reiterate um, again how the kind of context of this particular talk. And this specific CMS colloquium, it's also, as Vivek explained, also part of a seminar series um, that we've been putting on entitled The Cultural Politics of the South Asian Diaspora. And this, was a content, this was a series of four events, including this one today, which explored contemporary forms of South Asian popular culture. And the study of South Asian popular culture has become increasingly popular in recent years. You know, there's a journal dedicated to it and various conferences. 
But the aim of this particular series was to focus more on the vernacular culture of the diaspora, particularly the cultural texts, whether film, music, television, um, literature, or even comics, produced by second and third generation South Asians born and raised in the US and Europe. Moreover, our angle was to focus on these te- on our focus our reading of these texts more explicitly in terms of cultural politics. That is to frame our analysis in terms of how they might relate to an anti-racist, anti-imperialist program. And increasingly, in recent years, especially within media and cultural studies, research into popular culture has focused on consumption and the pleasures and meanings that individuals construct in consuming popular cultural texts. And while this was an import, certainly um, an important intervention at the time, I think the danger now is that cultural resistance can be found in any consumption, in, in every act of consumption, as it were, which, as far as the discussion of cultural politics is concerned, I think is actually can be quite limiting. So the aim, then, of this series was to think, to adopt a more critical perspective on South Asian popular culture, that is to think about how South Asian diasporic cultural production, alongside the cultural texts of other, of, produced by other people of colour in the West, have a challenge normative understandings of racial and ethnic groups, but also of national identity that was founded on the exclusion of racialised minorities, socially, politically, economically, and so on. And again, work in this area has taken place in very specific contexts, like national contexts, for instance, the US of UK. And so another key aim of the series was to think about the kind of transatlantic, well, it was to build a transatlantic network of people doing this kind of research to see how our own bits of research in our own particular locales relate to each other, to see how they connect, to look for similarities and, 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 and differences and also the potential for future collaborations. And this, in fact, underpins the reason why we invited Mariga for Cynthia to come in today. Because I think her research, which, is, which was you know, presented in this particular paper, and focuses on representations of black Americans in popular culture post-9-11, would, produce, would provide a really interesting counterpoint for the work that we've been doing on South Asian popular culture in the same time period. So in the, in the, over the next 10 or 15 minutes, in my, in my particular response to Cynthia's paper, I want to kind of see the way that the, the, the kind of cases presented kind of relate to my own research on representations of South Asians in Britain in the kind of post-9-11 period, especially Muslims. But in the process, I also want to use this opportunity to take you through some of my, my own particular approach on a subject which is slightly different and adopts more sociological focus on black and natural cultural production. That is, it sets it more explicitly within the context of the cultural industries and cultural production. And what I'm going to argue is that an analysis of cultural text and the politics of representation needs to be understood as constituted by very specific processes of cultural production as they occur in the media. And that kind of through this understanding, it will actually help us perhaps build a more effective form of anti-racist cultural politics. So I want to start by a few reflections on Cynthia's paper and why I think it was... Um, such an important critical intervention is its deconstruction of a very common narrative um, in popular cultural texts, such as Sleeper Cell, I think, that while that presents an image of America as a kind of racially harmonious in some ways, but hides an underlying narrative that legitimates US imperialism at home as well as abroad. 
And I was actually, when reading it, um, reminded of um, Rowan and Barthes' uh, book Mythologies, famous book Mythologies, and his essay on on, on the young black soldier, as he puts it. And here we see the young black soldier is saluting, you don't see it, but he's saluting the French flag, the true colour. Um, and now the picture doesn't actually tell us anything about the boy itself, himself, but instead is used to signify French imperial might and the loyalty of its subjects. But Barthes, of course, is telling us how this is a myth, right? How the image of a black soldier perpetuates a myth of French empire taking care of all its sons, regardless of colour, where in actual fact its colonial conquest in Africa tells us tells a very, very different story. And Cynthia, Cynthia's paper exposes a similar ideology or narrative appearing in contemporary US TV shows such as Sleeper Cell. Um, and not to kind of repeat too much, but here we have a lead character, a goodie, albeit a complex one, who is black and is leading the black Muslim and is leading the fight against terrorist sleeper cells. But despite the show's attempts to show that Islam is not synonymous with terrorism, and within the, same, within the same discourse, that in these post-race times, a Muslim, black Muslim can play a productive role in the, war, in the US war on terror. What a narrative actually achieves is a way of incorporating socially, economically, and politically marginalized black Americans into the US empire-building project, where Islam is constructed as the enemy. And in a way that I think, which is really interesting, perversely uses the language and history of the civil rights movement. But then there's also, which I found something really interesting, was, what I found really interesting was the reading of the rapper Big Neil Saunders, that while disturbing and troubling for all kinds of reasons, not least the rhetoric kind of typically associated with gangster rap, but also the, his particular kind of politics on, 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 on war and his approach to war, I think there's something really interesting how I think, which Cynthia kind of suggests and alludes to, is how it's in its nihilism, in its bare-knuckled expose of the war through the eyes and words of a black working-class occupier, disrupts those kind of narratives produced in mainstream TV shows such as such as Sleeper Cells. That attempts to convince us of how, as Cynthia puts it, honour, integrity and racial equality racial equality can emerge from imperial scenarios. Now, the aspect of Cynthia's paper that particularly resonated with my own work on South Asian popular culture and representations of South Asians in the UK was how popular cultural representations of racialized groups stress the absolute difference between those racialized groups and white mainstream culture. And in Cynthia's paper, there's an interesting update on um, Du Bois's notion of double consciousness, which within the terrain of post, post-race America, again, in quote marks, has been refigured into a dichotomy between Islam and the West from white and black. But I think the crucial aspect is still the same, that such a dichotomy is based upon the absolute irreconcilable difference between self and the racialized other. And this is what I found consistently in representations of South Asians in the UK, which are typically orientalist, reductive, and stereotypical. Now, Vijay Prashad, the cultural historian who incidentally spoke at um, our our first event, talks about the West's long-held fascination with the, quote, ghastly and beautiful mystery 
of the Indian subcontinent, the ghastly and the beautiful. And this is exactly how I see representations of South Asians. Configured exactly in this way. Of course, there's exceptions. I'll let you digest this. I know it's a lot. <laughs> but there is something to be said. There is definitely something there how, how representations, contemporary representations, and remember that Vijay was talking about you know, a kind of colonial moment. But we see though, that configuration happening today where representations of Asians continue to be split into the beautiful, i.e. Bollywood, Indian weddings, yogas, you know, yoga, Hindu or Sufi spirituality, or the ghastly, terrorism, forced marriage, honor killings, and so on. And the point is, is that whether it's the beautiful or ghastly side of South Asian culture that's being presented, it is nonetheless, and I'm sorry, I'm going to repeat this again, it's nonetheless constructed as absolutely different to the white European self. Right? But it's, um, it's at this point, though, my, my research takes a different route in exploring the politics of representation. It's here that my emphasis turns to on how these representations are actually produced, how they actually come about. What are the production, specifically, what are the production processes and labour that have gone into the making of these images? And what brought about this change in focus was, came from my own experience working in the media and seeing how regressive, what I consider regressive representations of Asianness, still persisting despite the increasing participation in the media of people from South Asian backgrounds. So we actually see more than ever more black and Asian folk working in the media. You know, various barriers to entry have broken down, obviously, um, you know, not, not totally, but despite that, we're still seeing the same regressive stereotypes. But not only that, and this is what is really disturbing, is that in my research, and again, through kind of my own experience working in the media, I found that it was actually Asian people, in the most instances, who were producing precisely these kind of images. And what is even more perverse about that is if you meet these people... They're actually very politically engaged. Their entire motivation for working in the media was precisely to challenge these regressive, stereotypical representations of Asianness. So it's not even a case of them selling out necessarily, because they still have, like I said, they, they articulate, and then when they reflect and they work, they articulate a very kind of political, almost, political and aesthetic goal. So if we think about how we might counter the deeply problematic narratives that emerge in popular cultural representations of war and terror that, um, as described in Cynthia's paper, we might, for instance, assume, well, then it's about giving more voice to black and Asian folk in order so that they can produce their own counter-narratives that counter those kind of imperialist narratives. But, as I've said, there's something going on there because, in my own research and from my own experiences, I've seen that, as I've said, often these problematic representations are made by Asian black folk themselves. So in which case, I wanted to see exactly what was happening. I decided I needed to focus more on the processes of cultural production to see how cultural industries work to reproduce racial and ethnic stereotypes. And this is the kind of sociological approach that I'm talking about. So to give you um, some insight into my research and some of my findings, I want, to brief, I want to very briefly present to you some research I did on the television industries in Britain 
and in the commissioning process in particular. I won't go into too much detail, but my research was essentially an ethnography of three cultural industries, theatre, publishing and television. And in the, as part of the ethnography, I interviewed over 50 people working in the culture industries, from executives and commissioners to filmmakers and producers to runners. And my aim was to see how an insight into the processes of cultural production might help us explain and understand why hegemonic representations of race and difference persist. I mean, here's an important kind of part of context here, is that the television sector in the UK, much like the entire cultural industries as a whole, has been seen as shift towards marketization, right? It's becoming cre- and, and greater competition. It's become increasingly commercial. And in, this, in the UK context, this has had serious ramifications for public service broadcasters, such as the BBC and Channel 4. Um, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but essentially these broadcasters, the ones I named, BBC and Channel 4, have a particular public service remit that they have to cater for minority audiences in Britain. So I know it's kind of slightly, it's very particular to Britain in some ways. But due to increasing commercial pressures, such public service broadcasters now are kind of finding it increasingly difficult to cater for these audiences because now there's this obsession with ratings and showing that they're and, 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 and pulling people in. And they don't feel that stories that cater for minority audiences can help them do that. So if you think about how these channels with a public service remit, you can, you can see how, therefore, black and Asian cultural producers in particular are particularly reliant on these platforms, right? But as, along with these commercial pressures, public service broadcasters can no longer afford to target niches or minorities in the way they once did. Or put in, put in another way, for niche or minority interest programs to get commissioned for a prime time slot, they need to be seen as having mainstream appeal, Right? And that's a, that's, a, that's a key, key kind of um, shift that's gone on. And it's had serious ramifications for, in this context, Asian culture producers in particular. When I talk about Asians, by the way, in, in, I talk about them in the UK context, which means South Asian. Um, I know it means something slightly different here. But essentially, a common theme in my interviews with directors and producers was how they had to tailor their stories for the so-called mainstream audience, which they felt had very reductive effects upon the kind of complex narratives that they wanted to produce. So here's, I'm going to present to you now some quotes from some of my respondents. Sorry about the big block of text, but I'll, I'll read it for you, because I think it's really important, because it kind of cuts straight through to the point of my argument. This is, so this is a freelance producer-director, Asian. He says, serious programming about serious issues, it's very hard to get that on board there will be less. There will be more dramatic stories that get made, but more subtle issues will not get reflected. And I do think there is a problem in British media increasingly in the last few years. Channel 4 in particular seems to be stuck in this mode of representing British Muslims. So much emphasis on the terrorism question of fanaticism. That is what they're interested in. And yes, it's an important issue, but no means the most important issue in the whole. I think if you were to look at Channel 4... A lot of the documentary output related to Asian people, a lot of it is related to terrorism, which I think is very sad. Indeed, one of the most interesting interviews I conducted was actually with the head of religion at Channel 4, a guy called Akhil Ahmed, um, who was, as head of religion, was responsible for the channel's multicultural and religious programming. Now, Akhil Ahmed was a British-born, is a British-born Muslim, 
who actually, incidentally, has changed jobs and now the head of religion at BBC, which is which, which, funnily enough, actually caused a lot of controversy for all kinds of reasons. I won't let you guess. But um, yeah, Akhil Ahmed was a British-born Muslim who, in, who, in our interview, would stress his working-class roots and his lack of an Oxbridge education. He was like really defiant about it, actually. And the purpose of this interview was to see how Akhil approaches a commissioning process with regards to multicultural religious programming. And the basic gist, the whole of Akhil's approach for a variety of political and commercial reasons, was that he, wants to make, he wanted to make relig- mainstream religious programming. He wanted to make programs that tackled religion that would get the big prime-time slots. And he was pr- again, he was proud of the fact that he, his programs would consistently be shown at 8 o'clock and 9 o'clock, you know, the prime-time viewing in the UK. But also, as well, though, he understood that such stories weren't going to get the same kind of ratings. When you've got the X Factor on, or whatever the American equivalent is, on ITV, you know, those kind of programming, those programs aren't going to bring in the ratings. Also, by just the nature of their subject matter, they're not going to bring those ratings. So, Akil's strategy was based on a process, on the notion of generating noise, noise, which is basically press coverage. Here's another quote from Akil. From my point of view, basically, we're not going to try out try to get out and out huge ratings as much as we can try. So we definitely want the program to be noticed. We want it to get written about. We want it to win awards. I want it to have some noise, as they say. And essentially, basically, to cut long story short, my, my argument is that this kind of quest for noise has very, you can kind of guess what's coming up, but pr- produces very reductive effects. Narratives that are best simplistic, but at worst sensationalist or indeed racist. And just come some of the quick scan of some of the programs that he's commissioned. So here are the titles of them. Inside the Mind of a Suicide Bomber, The Cult of a Suicide Bomber, Women Only Jihad, The Fundamentalist, putting the fun in fundamental, I'm gutted I missed that particular show. <laughs> but, and you can see how he's attempted to generate noise, specifically through titles in this instance and the subjects. And that is not to say that these subjects were dealt insensitively, or that they weren't interesting, or even kind of um, uh, potentially, potentially resistive in some ways. But it was also notable that in several of my interviews, how respondents criticised Channel 4 for its representations of Islam in particular, which they believe reduced Muslim cultures to the usual stereotypes. On Channel 4, Channel 4 actually have a TV show where they get an audience of viewers and they kind of ask questions to various directors, producers and TV celebrities about what's happening in the week. And we, there was this great quote from a journalist who turned up on the show where he says, the fact is we don't, we're talking about some of Akil's programming, the fact is we don't see a diversity of real Muslim experience. The fact is we see, what we see is categorised into beard, scarves, halal meat, terrorists and forced marriage. And the point is that regardless of how sensitively or intelligently these subjects are dealt with, they nonetheless constitute a discursive formation that perpetuates a representation of Islam as abhorrent and absolutely irreconcilably different from Western culture. And such stories may generate a lot of noise, but it's a noise with an unruly, unruly feedback in terms of the negative representations of Muslim, Muslims and religion and race in general in the UK. Um, so to conclude, there's two points I want to make. 
So I want to, the first point I want to make is that it's in the production process that I believe representations of Asianness are reduced to these stereotypes. So no matter how much, as cultural producers, we want to tell, kind of produce a more kind of rich and, and different version of Asian culture, it's actually in the process of commissioning, marketing, distribution, and so on, that our narratives get reduced to racial stereotypes. And the second point I want to make is that the decisions and practices that produce these effects are not simply the outcome of the prejudice or bourgeois values of the particular social class who tend to dominate the upper echelons of the cultural industries. You know, not least, for instance, I've shown how in the case of Akhil Ahmed, we have a working-class British Muslim here who wasn't educated at Oxbridge. But critically, it's narrated through this kind of normative, common-sense economic rationale that these decisions get made. Well, this isn't commercial, so maybe we can turn the story... No. Those kind of, that kind of language, those kind of processes. And it's my argument that, it, that, that, that these racialising effects are embedded in commercial practices that have intensified, as we've seen, increasing shift towards neoliberalism. So essentially, focusing on the cultural industry's context and the processes of industrialised cultural production in this way, helps us think through capitalism's implications in the politics of representations, race and, represent, race and racism. And then finally, to bring it back to Cynthia's paper, what actually kind of resonated with me was the, was, was, was the kind of description of the production context of Saunders' album, that even though it was reliant on a corporate platform, he produced in his own recording studio on his own record label. And it's such an observation where I believe, actually, that the potential lies for a more effective cultural politics. Because the struggle for black and Asian culture producers in particular who want to have their stories heard is not just about how they articulate and construct those stories, but how they actually are able to present them to the world via the cultural industries. And as I've attempted to show, it's through the increasingly commercial processes of cultural production, for instance, the obsession with noise, that reduces the narratives of black and Asian folk, filmmakers, authors, playwrights, musicians, into stereotypical representations of difference. Consequently, there's something really, I think, there's something about Saunders' DIY approach and the utilisation of digital technologies in particular that have evaded those corporate entities that attempt to see, that attempt to reduce racialised bodies, that see racialised bodies as a unique selling point or a marketing tool. And it's this focus on production that I feel is critical for cultural politics of difference that allows us more effectively to counter the dominant imperialist discourses that, such as those powerfully captured in Cynthia's paper that continue to exclude and marginalise the experience of people of colour in the West. Thank you. Okay. Um, Thank you. Uh, we will now uh, open it up to questions. So I'm going to pass this around. First, I'd like to say I really enjoyed both presentations, and I was really um, struck by yours, Cynthia, um, particularly when you opened with um, Talib Kweli's quote, quotation, niggas ain't become American until 9-11. And I was thinking about um, the ways in which um, black Americans have become conveniently American or non-American um, as a result of however dominant culture wants to view them. So I was actually interested in um, how you might read um, the recent 
two cultural moments of um, Obama having to present his birth certificate to show his true Americanness, um, juxtaposed with the um, death of Osama bin Laden a couple of days later. Um, you know, I was I was thinking about this idea of you know this 9/11 moment. If this is a moment that Quelly is reading as a moment when we when blacks become American, um, what it means to even think of our black president. Um, having to prove, almost having to prove his Americanness in two ways. So. Well, I mean, I think you said it really um, very succinctly and beautifully. Um, the yeah, I've been following the birther controversy since it since it sort of you know originated and the kind of different uh, narratives that were coming out about where he was born. Um, whether he was born, I mean, there are so many different things that have been said, like, oh, he was born in Kenya, no, he was born in Hawaii, no, he was, you know, et cetera, he was born in the middle of the sea, no. But um, part of what I found fascinating is, you know, just the kind of way in which um, a kind of racist exclusionary logic has um, migrated through um, and, and been translated into this kind of question of his citizenship. Um, and, you know, there is, I, I saw some poll recently that suggested that, you know, 30% of the birther movement folks still won't believe that he is actually, you know, qualified by citizenry to be president. So, I mean, clearly, as you know, and as many people know, this is about much more than, you know, where he was born, um, et cetera. It's about a kind of stubborn refusal to, you know, to accept a black man as president, which is, um, I mean, I find it interesting, you know, on the one hand that for so long he held out, right, and didn't actually produce this when he, he could have done it a year ago had he wanted to. Um, I think that, you know, there was this thinking that it was going to just go away, and then seeing Trump sort of bring it back up, it was just like we need to, you know, put the kibosh on this. Um, in terms of the um, Osama bin Laden um, thing, I mean, one of the things I found um, interesting in the discussion around, you know, should a picture be shown, he was buried at sea, he was armed, no, he wasn't armed, you know, et cetera, um, was the kind of way in which people are describing it as kind of ending the 9-11 era. And I'm not sure what that's going to mean. Um, and I'm not sure that I even think that's true. But there has been this kind of discussion of that from the, the um, discussion of him calling George W. Bush and saying, like, you know, we got him or whatever he said, um, to him inviting him to go to Ground Zero with him, although George W. Bush said he wouldn't go, which I thought was kind of an interesting, like, that he just declined. Um, so, I mean, I do think there is this kind of um, way in which this is being read as kind of capping off the 9-11 moment, and I'm not sure whether that's true, as I said. But I think the other piece of it is it will be interesting to see how the election campaign of Obama utilizes this. Because, you know, one of the things that was so very irritating about um, George W. Bush was the constant invocation of it, um, you know, strategically, particularly when he was running for re-election. Um, and I'll be interested to see whether or not there's that plays a part in this next election campaign, because of course you have, um, you know, many of the the people who subscribe to the kind of birther um, ethos who will be running very kind of vigorous campaigns against him, um, and so even just in terms of who ends up being the final nominee. Um, you know, Trump sort of equivocating 
on whether or not the birth certificate meant he'd prove, he said, well, of course we have to test its authenticity and make sure that it's, you know, authentic. So, I mean, I think that it's not necessarily going to be quelled by this precisely because of the underlying, you know, things that it's, it's representing. How are you doing? Um, thank you for the uh, presentation. I'm sorry I came in a little bit late and I didn't get a chance to uh, to see your presentation. But um, I'm a little bit curious about uh, this uh, conundrum here that you present about the negative uh, portrayal of blacks and uh, Asians in the media. Uh, as you know, this is uh, it's something that black folks have been dealing with for a long time in this country. And... Um, I kind of have a little bit uh, different um, take on the whole thing, and I'm curious to know what you what you feel about this. Um, it's it seems to me that um, you know we spend a little bit too much time trying to prove that we don't um, amount to the the stereotypes that are portrayed about us, and I think that that's potentially um, the intent of white supremacy because it kind of puts us in the position of trying to disprove a negative and therefore we end up having to prove in fact that we are white or more like white people and in effect uh, it's a promotion of white supremacy. And so I think there's a, there's a big danger in, in worrying too much about how, the, how we're being portrayed and I think it's more important for us to, to recognize what we think of ourselves and teach our children you know, who they really are um, based on, you know, what we see them as as opposed to what popular culture sees us as because uh, I think that that's a, that's a losing game that we, we can't win, you know, by continually trying to uh, prove what we're not and seeing ourselves through their eyes. And I think that that's a, that's a dilemma that uh, black America particularly is caught up in now. And, and um, I, don't, I don't pretend that um, there's a whole bunch of people who think the way I do about it, um, but I always wince and cringe when I see too much of this, you know, about trying to, you know, prove that we're not bad, we're not evil, we're not terrorists, we're not criminals, you know, we're not this and we're not that, you know, because to me I see that as a, you know, just a, a promotion of white supremacy, which is what I think the desired effect is. And I'd just like to know what you think about that. Um, that was a criticism of the Cosby show in particular, wasn't it? I think quite a lot of people have written about that. Um, my, I guess my argument isn't about that. how we need to tell basically the inverse of these stories, of these representations. I don't think it's about producing like the, the exact opposite in order to counter you know, the, 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 kind of the, 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 the dominant representations. I mean, there's an argument as well that precisely doing that, which I think you're alluding to, is how that just kind of perpetuates a discourse of there is racial differences and cultural and ethnic differences between people. And I guess it's more about what I'm more focusing on rather than just how, what, what, how we, what representations are needed. I'm more interested in how we can produce a cult, how we can transform the culture industries and the media in particular so that it allows for the full diversity, diversity of voices, right? So my emphasis isn't so much that we need more positive role models necessarily on TV. It's more about, well, this is what the culture industry is. Don't allow spaces, don't allow p 
people to speak in certain ways. They only allow very specific stories to be told. And so my interest, therefore, is in thinking about how those barriers can change, how we need to transform those barriers. So we can just simply tell stories about ourselves, not necessarily about our racial identities or gender identities or, or, sex, or sexual identities and so on. Right? So it's just about thinking about diversity and pluralism. I would disagree, though, that I think that I think popular culture is critical, though, actually. I think it has a, plays a vital role in terms of how we think about ideas, not just racial identity, but national identity. And the way that national identity, in fact, is based on this, again, this notion that there's absolute differences between these bounded groups that are defined by race, gender, sexuality, and so on. And so I think actually public culture is a very important terrain. I think, I mean, not, you know, not, 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 not to, I mean, and I think in conjunction with a more kind of explicit anti-racist politics as it happens in the ground in terms of, you know, addressing material kind of um, dis, um, um, inequalities in society. But in terms of, yeah, it, it, in terms of, yeah, sorry, do you want to? Um, I mean, I actually am really sorry that you missed my presentation because I think that I'm, I'm actually showing the kind of flip side of that, right? So in these dramas um, where black men are central, they're actually giving us, in quotes, what we want to some extent, right? It's not about black men being like thieves and liars and, you know, adulterers, et cetera. It's like they are ideal in all sorts of ways. They're ideal morally, they're ideal physically, et cetera. And so then what happens when, you know, at the level of a certain kind of representation, we got what we thought we wanted, right? But what happens when it's in service of a very kind of conservative U.S. imperialism? Then what do we do? Because, you know, I've talked to many people about a show like The Unit and, you know, black people of the 60s generation, and they really are drawn to it because it's this incredibly strong guy. He's the all-state guy, um, Dennis Haysbert. You know, he's a very strong figure. And so then the question becomes, you know, figure for what? And I think it's very easy in when you're getting what has so long been missing from popular culture, you know, mainstream popular culture, to sort of take your eye off the other piece of it. And it is very pleasurable. I like watching these things and being like, oh, you know, it's nice to see like a, you know, a black man in particular kind of, you know, um, role of authority. But then I have to kind of watch how seductive that becomes. Um, and then sort of identify the places where that kind of seduction turns into something that's very kind of, you know, nefarious. So. Um, just in terms of the influence of popular culture, I think, you know, because of the, the history of black folks in this country, you know, black people have always had to deal with these negative images and stereotypes. And so, you know, down on the grassroots level, you know, we've had to define ourselves aside and apart from the larger society. And so, you know, it, there's always, in spite of this, this you know, perpetual negative portrayal um, and the fact that we've had to define ourselves, I think, you know, rather than popular culture influencing us or dictating to us, you know, popular culture has always really followed what's come out of the black ghettos, the urban ghettos, and black America. And if you look at you know, what's the best of popular culture? You look at, you know, uh, uh, Madison Avenue, for example. What's hip and what's hot is always something that's been borrowed and taken from, from black culture. And so black folks have always really kind of driven the engine of what's 
cutting edge in popular culture. And so I kind of disagree that, you know, I mean, I do know, I do know and agree that popular culture has a very influential role on society as a whole, but I think black America particularly has always, uh, for a large part, you know, defined itself in a very creative way, in a very fluid way that has allowed popular culture to kind of follow suit. And I think that um, that's something that's very important and is overlooked about, you know, where popular culture gets its main themes from. Thank you, Cynthia, for this really brilliant analysis. I wish now that I had seen the shows. Which <laughs> but, but what I wanted to ask you, I, I have so many questions, but maybe I'll... Uh, it's a kind of a hypothetical question, and I, because I was very uh, drawn to that, the way in which it's a very powerful uh, show and really you know, exploits all the contradictions that existed within the civil rights movements. And I'm wondering whether they can do the same for women, because it's, women's participation in civil rights has been so erased in popular culture at some level. But on the other hand, similar to what you talk about, the black bodies being used, you know, the, the, the section of feminists that are pro-war, which is what I talked about last week, actually, in terms of... Um, so the ways in which they are able to, you know, amass their support for, for war in order to save brown women from brown men, basically, right? So, but I was wondering uh, how we look at the whole narrative of the civil rights, which effectively has erased women's contribution to it, yeah. <laughs> It'll come back. Um, that's a great question. I mean, part of one of the things I, I, why I wrote this paper partly was about trying to figure out why I was seeing so many more black men but not black women on these TV shows. And, and what was it that was made available through black maleness that wasn't somehow made available through black femaleness? Um, so that was part of the reason to you know sort of figure out what is going on here. Um, yeah, wow, that's, I mean, one of the things that, I mean, this doesn't, I don't know that this really addresses your question, but I do think that the language of, um, in some ways, the language of the civil rights movement has become this language that is a kind of, um, that seems to exist in a kind of vacuum, right? And so it can be taken up at various moments um, by people who, for whom it shouldn't be such a kind of natural language. Um, so I'm thinking here of Glenn Beck, you know, um, of his march very explicitly being described as a march for civil rights, um, you know, because following that logic, white people have somehow become, you know, uh, disenfranchised in a particular way. Um, so I've been very interested in that, and I've sort of been thinking about it in terms of that. Um, I did try to find, to, to go back to black women for a moment, I did try to find representations within the military of black women, and I came up with one. Um, and it was so very frustrating, I can't tell you, not to find them, but also the one I found was incredibly, oh, it was just problematic. It was um, an interview with a black female soldier who talked about 
um, she was asked, she was behind the, the, in the green zone, and she talked about the difficulty of finding someone to do her hair. And so the whole kind of discussion was, it was down to that. That was one prominent thing, like, you know how difficult it can be. And she was talking to another black woman, so it was like, you know, they, they commiserated on this. And then the other thing she talked about is the importance of always having your gun with you without any discussion of what that means. You know, she was like, I love my gun, and I have it everywhere. I never, you know, walk outside without it. I sleep with it under my pillow, et cetera. So those were like the two sort of focal points of this interview that went on for like 10 or 15 minutes. Um, so anyway, just incredibly frustrating, and I haven't really found much else that has sort of directly addressed um, this issue. Um, so, I mean, that's not really answering your question, but it's just the two kinds of things I've been thinking about in relationship to um, these issues. Um, I, thank you well, to, for the great presentations. Um, I wanted to, um, it's kind of a comment slash question. Uh, going back to what you were saying earlier about when we do see um, these representations that we so desired, uh, or were lacking, whether it's in the people in authority, people of color, et cetera, uh, then it becomes even more difficult when they are presenting the imperialist perspective. Um, sorry, yeah. So I was just thinking that is one of the greatest difficulties uh, of having Obama as a president, um, and which it has been much more difficult to have anti-imperialist discussions with the liberal community um, because then it becomes this we can't challenge um, that because then it becomes uh, you know uh, so I was just wondering if you know thinking about that like what is the in uh, one of the anti-war um, um, conversations we had with some radical people their, their perspective was this was um, that African Americans need to take the leadership on critiquing the imperialism that how just having um, the symbolic representation hasn't changed the policies of imperialism, et cetera. So I just wondered what your perspective might be on that, uh, how to handle that particular challenge. Um, I guess a couple thoughts. I mean, this is something I've been thinking about because my husband and I were talking about the fact that um, I have a two-and-a-half-year-old and, and this 15-week-old, and that they will kind of come to any kind of consciousness assuming that Obama gets reelected um, within this kind of context of a black man being president. You know, and he's already seen, um, Jade, my older boy, has already seen Obama, and he recognizes him as someone very serious on TV. And so he, you know, sort of says, like, who, who is that man? Or, you know, he asked me these questions, and it's such a radically different context from the one that I grew up in, or, you know, certainly my parents grew up in. Um, and so I have been thinking a lot about this, um, I've written a little bit about Obama. Um, one of the things I'm sort of fascinated by it, within this context of the civil rights um, narratives and the kind of perpetuation of them in different forms is, of course, during his election, he utilized those narratives very um, smartly. Um, in some ways to not talk about race, but then in other moments to talk about race. You know, he did this very kind of savvy dance, I think. Um, and not... Nothing was more fascinating to me that on the one hand, you know, he does, the, he has to do the speech on race, and he does, um, when he spoke at the Democratic National Convention before he was who he is now, you know, he was sort of playing on, like, you know, this idea that a kid coming from where he came from could, you know, this is obviously evidence of. 
Um, and he's done that repeatedly. That's, you know, big, as you know, part of his narrative. But then he, he chose, um, when he did his uh, acceptance speech um, at the convention, he chose this song, Only in America, um, which was a country and western song that was about, oh, you know, it's, it's how, what a great country it is. And so there are these images, as you probably remember, of him standing on stage with his family and then like, only in America, um, et cetera. And so I found that really fascinating that he moved, you know, that it was very important to kind of stake out that territory, um, as it were. Um, so, you know, to answer your question, I mean, you know, for me, it's just firmly about looking at um, the policies and the context. Um, I mean, in some ways, it's back to what Anamik was saying in a very different realm. It's like, you know, there is the position that is known as the president of the U.S., and it's not like anyone can just walk in and do whatever they want to do, right? There's a whole kind of context and frame in which they're operating. Um, and it means that a lot of moves that they might, within their heart of hearts, want to pursue, they can't. Um, and that's not to excuse him at all. It's just to say that we can get really caught up in thinking about an individual in this space as so transformative that we don't really think about the fact that he's hemmed in and locked in in all sorts of ways that we need to criticize, um, et cetera. The other thing I was thinking just briefly is that Tavis Smiley was being interviewed on NPR, I think it was yesterday or the day before, and one of the things he's been most criticized for is the fact that he criticizes Obama. Um, and he has a show with Cornell West, which maybe you've heard, where they, you know, this is like their weekly thing, is to talk about like what has he done this week that's you know messed up. Um, and he was just saying that he found it interesting that when he was criticizing Clinton, nobody had this critique. They weren't saying like, stop criticizing Clinton, but as soon as it was Obama, it was like, oh, is this about jealousy? Is this about this? Is this about that? Um, and I think that has partly to do with just the kind of um, really serves politics of representation, but I also think it has to do with the fact that he was incredibly critical of Obama as a candidate, too, and didn't kind of fall into the kind of party line of, like, this would be, like, this great move forward for black people. You know, he, he was very resistant to that. It's interesting, because Obama almost has kind of actually taken up a certain character in popular culture that kind of legitimates the kind of narratives that, you've, that Cynthia talks about in her paper. So, you know, from this kind of perspective, I think kind of seeing him in that, in, in that play, as playing that role, as con, you know, in con, allowing these kind of imperialist narratives in popular culture to emerge. I think that's, in terms of popular, you know, in terms of the terrain of popular culture, I think that's a certain battle that has to be fought in terms of a political, wider political battle. Then, yeah, I think you're right. It's about kind of being able to produce this critique that, you know, critiques the system or the, the kind of particular circumstances rather than the individual might be more helpful. when 24 had a black president like me and all my friends were like yeah 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 right a black president like and of course he's like totally you know anti-terrorist etc cetera, etc cetera. like it seemed incomprehensible to us you know and you know eight years later it's it's our daily lives two questions thank you um i had a question for the second speaker omnit is that right omnit um and it was in the, your response to the question here. Um, you said, if I understood you correctly, and correct me if I, if I didn't, that what you're looking for is a, is a representation in the media of the variety, of the diversity that actually exists. 
And what I wonder is if you have a strategy for that, because as I understand it, they're looking for ratings. I mean, it's just kind of bottom line, right? Um, so how do you how do you work against that if that's if that's their their main purpose is to get the best possible ratings? <laughs> I mean, I think um, in, in the in the context of Britain, especially in television, public service broadcasting had a you know had a very key role. I mean, it was f deeply flawed in all kinds of ways, you know, inst institutionally. But in terms of it, kind of the ideal of a public service broadcaster being buffeted away from the market and market pressures to be able to produce those kind of programs and texts that the commercial channels couldn't afford to make. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then, but as I would kind of try to set out, you're seeing, you know, the BBC and constantly, constantly come under pressure from the Conservative government, successive Conservative governments in particular. But also I'm really interested in independent production, DIY production. I know which, you know, is in terms of making a greater impact is kind of harder, but that's kind of what sort of resonated with me, even though the, I understand um, O'Neill Saunders, big Neil Saunders was... Um, what he's actually saying is problematic in all kinds of you know, different ways, but actually, but the kind of process behind it, I think is really interesting in terms of what, you know, what that means for the arts and for black and Asian folk or any people of colour in terms of getting our stories out there. It's about being able to kind of evade those kind of commercial reductive processes that argue are embedded in commercial practices. Um, I mean, I've done a little bit of work on Sankofa and Black Audio Collective and the earlier um, sorts of um, black British um, and South Asian collectives that tried to do this work outside of the system and then in some ways, you know, got reincorporated, et cetera. I'm wondering if you think there's still a kind of um, opposition that gets created between, on the one hand, doing it yourself and on the other hand, accessibility, right? Both in terms of distribution, but also in terms of, you know, style, how, how it's created. Do you think, do you see that still sort of being a kind of tension in the way that it was in the 1960s and in the 1980s? So, so the tension between... A tension between, on the one hand, a do-it-yourself ethos, and on the other hand, not necessarily being accessible to um, a mainstream audience, either because stylistically it's not mainstream enough for people to be really interested in it, or because it just doesn't get seen uh, because of the distribution yeah. issues. I mean, yeah, and that's that's the that's the deep, 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 deep dilemma and problem that that people, independent producers, face. Um, there's a guy called Nicholas Garnham who talks about who's kind of a cultural industries theorist who actually kind of argues. So, for instance, we have the Arts Council in Britain who have actually slashed their budgets and have had their budget slashed but made a real point of ring fencing a, 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 part, a portion of money specifically for what they called culturally the culturally diverse arts and that was kind of in some ways both helpful and deeply problematic in all kinds of ways um, which I probably won't go into now but I guess as a critique of that there was this guy who argues that actually the, pro, the kind of money would be better spent not on individual artists and helping them tell their stories, but actually on kind of making, producing, giving more access to kind of marketing and distribution channels, actually. So in terms of kind of building audiences for the work, because there's no point, yeah, we can kind of produce our own particular esoteric little work, but there's no audience for it, and so what? But actually, it's not because audiences will not get it immediately, but, you know, it's about building audiences and so on. So something about, but, yeah. I think, those, I think that dilemma is still definitely, does still exist. 
Thank you for your talk, Professor Young. This is a quick question. It's getting late. Um, and I wonder if the show you sampled is thinking about uh, the question of the blackness of blackness along generational lines. Um, yeah, I, I definitely think that that's right, and I think that partly um, it's that kind of generational divide that I, I find so deeply problematic, right? I mean, it is trying to make this argument that, on the one hand, these were like a, a different set of concerns um, in an earlier moment for his father than they were for him, but I think that the the point that he's making about being in service of a particular national politic is the point that gets written out, right? Because it's seen as a kind of outdated generational concern that is no longer kind of relevant. Um, and that's what I find so deeply problematic about that. And just briefly on the unit, there's um, similarly, the civil rights kind of um, discussion is framed as a generational one between the Jim Crow kind of generation and um, the generation that's about 20 and the generation that's about 45, right? So there's these kind of three different arcs. And it, it very much, though, is framed within this kind of um, history or tradition of military service as honorable. So even more of the edges around, like, why would black men have gone into the military at a particular moment get kind of, you know, further smoothed away, and it becomes just about this kind of heroic tradition. This will probably have to be our last. Hi. Now, I, I wondered if um, um, one of the reasons, I mean, it just occurred to me as you were talking, uh, the fact that there is a certain kind of programming which is very reductive, and so many British Asians talk about the fact that they can't create certain kinds of images. That's also because the... Uh, the media industries in Britain are under threat too. If you go to the BBC, you know, in the entrance, they have a, a chart, a huge chart, of uh, where the BBC stands in relation to other media. So, in fact, Huffington Post is read by more people, is more influential than anything that the BBC does. So, from a perspective that's not British, the BBC has become not only the BBC but other media organisations within the UK have actually become, their influence has actually shrunk transnationally. Or so it seems to me. As I read this, I thought, oh God, the BBC is, is under threat not only from within Britain, from conservative politicians, but also from what's going on in the world, which in some ways is not working in their favor in a way that it did during the imperialist time. So I wonder whether there is that kind of element too, that when you are threatened, you want uh, you want only certain kinds of things to be produced, and they're reductive, they're simplistic, they represent stereotypes. And the other point is, I don't know whether you know. I mean, um, media organisations like Sunrise Radio have made a great deal of impact, and many Asians are completely switched off because there is a kind of ethnic media which has got nothing to do with, you know, its its composition, its origins, and so on and so forth. Um, I wonder if you thought of some of these things. Yeah, no, I, again, I, I, I think 
makes really powerful points there. And I, I think you're absolutely right about the waning influence of the BBC and so on. When, if you consider the BBC originally was tied to empire, I'm not sure if that's such a bad thing, to be honest with you. But, um, but then I think what's really interesting, though, is that, that potential for what you suggested, like, you know, transnational media spaces, actually, kind of, because, you know, increasing globalised times, these stories, we can, you know, watch all this stuff more and more. I can see what's on American television um, more than ever before. And that's, I think that's, that's a really, it's not, that's something I haven't thought about. And I think this, I'd be interested in the scope there. And, you know, digital technologies, internet kind of allows for that potential. So I'd be, yeah, I think that's really interesting. Thank you. Thank you, uh, thank you, Cynthia. Thank you, Onimic, uh, for your presentations, and thank you all for coming and participating.